All right, so last week we talked about the guy named Luke. You guys remember that? Mm-hmm. And we said Luke wrote two books. Those two books are? Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts are the same author. They're, this, they're two bodies of one piece of literature. Where Luke ends, Acts picks up. We'll see that later today. We talked about Luke's life. We went through the book of Acts and we saw how Luke traveled with Paul throughout the end of Acts. Today we're going to start on when did Luke write. On your handout, you you do have the correct answer. 58 to 63 AD is the estimate of when he wrote. But there are three views on this, and I want to make you aware of them because, well, if you read enough commentaries, you'll be made aware of them. And I want to just give you something that you can deal with those. One view says that he wrote in the second century, as late as 150. This comes from a higher critic who essentially said that the Gospel of Luke is an expansion of the work of Marcion. Who remembers from last week? Who is Marcion? Yes, that guy. Uh, he was removing pages and parts of the scriptures and saying these are not part of the scriptures and we don't need to pay attention to them. This higher critic came up with the idea that the Gospel of Luke is nothing more than whatever Marcion had, and then someone went and added on to it later. It's really working backwards. So how did he walk with Paul? It's <laughs> a good question. That's they would old, say that's that an old, old, old man. Th- they would say that Luke was not the guy, the same, the same person. They would say it's a different person in the second century who just kind of revised this and attached his name, Luke's name, to it. Uh, Alfred Plummer talks about this and he this is a really quick quote he's talking about the time frame and the setting a couple problems with this view the time the cultural settings the political settings that you find in luke acts don't fit with the second century you can't make those two fit uh, alfred Plummer said the historical atmosphere of the acts is not that of 95 to 135 in the acts the jews are the persecutors of christians in 95 to 150 the Jews were being persecuted themselves. So that doesn't really work. There's another problem with saying he wrote in the second century, and I think Lance kind of hit on it. He'd be dead. He, he would be dead. That would be a big one. But in Luke 1, that, that is a big one. There is another problem here. What does he say in his prologue of the Gospel of Luke? Right. right. He said, I went and talked to the eyewitnesses. By the second century, all the eyewitnesses are gone. They're all dead. So you would have to begin by assuming that the author of Luke, the author of this book, is a liar. This is too late. It doesn't work. The other view says he was writing between 75 and 85 AD. Why do you think they want him to be writing in 75 AD? What happened in 70 AD? What happened in 70 A.D.? Yes, in 70 A.D., the Romans went and ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem. And that is a key date. They want it to be after that date. The question is, why? Grab your Bibles. Go to Luke 19. We're going to look at verse 43. Uh, Well, let's just start in 41 for context. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which would make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Go over to chapter 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now, you know what these people say? That proves it already happened. Because Luke is too specific. There is no way Luke could give this prophecy and it be accurate. It's not possible. And this is what you need to understand about higher criticism and things like the synoptic problem. It begins with an assumption, and the assumption is miracles do not happen. 
and they make the assumption because there are no miracles happening today, therefore, in their minds, there were no miracles happening then. Which means when they read this, they say there's no way that it's possible that Luke or Jesus, who's being quoted here, could make this prophecy and it be accurate, unless he's writing in hindsight. What did they do with faith? You have to understand, this is the result of, they start with a priori assumption. And the a priori assumption is, if it's not happening today, it didn't happen then. So Daniel was written sometime after the Ptolemies? No. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this, though, right? But that is when they date it. see where I'm going. I do see where you're going. But that's when they date it. They date it, well, they date it into, like, the 2nd century B.C. When we're saying they, who are we talking about? Are we talking about Christians dating this in this place? Or are we talking about an outside source who's not believing in the Bible? Like, who, who's the they? The answer is yes. <laughs> um, w- these, are, these are people who say they are Christian. Okay, but they have embraced what is known as higher criticism that comes out of Germany out of the, uh, the 19th century. And this essentially says there are no miracles. Um, they use higher criticism, things like form criticism or redaction criticism, which is all a bunch of assumptions that they make about the text. And then they come up with conclusions that we would honestly disagree with. And I would say many of them are not believers. But even when you read good, faithful men, I was reading William Hendrickson. He embraces, he embraces this, higher criticism. He doesn't believe in this dating. William Hendrickson was a great commentator. He wrote some great books, but he'll embrace it. Leon Morris embraces it. Um, Carson, D.A. Carson embraces it. It's, what, it's just everywhere. If you want to be an academic today, you have to embrace higher criticism. You have to embrace the synoptic problem. They point to these prophecies and say, these are too specific. These cannot be correct unless he's writing in hindsight. And then they'll point to Mark. You don't have to turn there. Mark 13, 14 just says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, it describes the destruction of Jerusalem very vaguely. But in Luke 21, 20, and also verse 24, we didn't read 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's too specific. There's no way he could be that specific before 70 AD. Therefore, Luke must have been writing after 70 AD. That kind of just blows my mind because if you just take the Old Testament, it's pretty specific about the future. Yeah. And now they're going to live uh, post Christ and, and say that. Yeah. It just blows my mind. Yeah. That's why I said, where's the faith? This is what academics engage in. And when you read commentaries, I want to make you aware of it just so if you read a commentary and you see this, you know what it is. Uh, William Hendrickson actually commented on this. I said William Hendrickson embraces some of this, but he doesn't embrace this dating. Here's what he said Liberals. These are theological liberals. Regard these words to be a description in the form of prophecy, to be sure, but actually written after Jerusalem's fall. They base this conclusion on the vividness and, as they see it, detailed character of the description. It follows that they assign to Luke Acts a date after 70 AD. Prophecy can't happen. Miracles can't happen. Therefore, he must have been writing in hindsight. And they do the same thing with the book of Daniel. Daniel's prophecies are too accurate, therefore Daniel had to be writing late. And the actual person known as Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel. But if this is valid, if his prophecies here are too specific, here's a question, why is it so vague? All he said was, your enemies will surround you. That could describe any siege of any city. At any time, right? If he's writing in hindsight, why didn't he say the Romans trample you underfoot? Why didn't he say the Romans are going to... And then describe details of the siege. If he's writing a history, which he is, that would be relevant information. But he didn't write that. I would go one further, though. He could... God gave him the revelation of that, he, he would be able to write it. Mm-hmm. 
See, that's why I'm, I'm saying, you know, the, 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 the real core issue is faith. Yeah. And I agree with you. It, it, the core issue here is faith. Are you going to believe what the Bible says, or are you going to come up with some theory that fits what your logic wants? Putting things between the lines instead of reading the lines. Right, right. They come to the text with assumptions. Right. They, they come to the text with, with assumptions already made. There's another problem here. Go down to verse 27. Then, after all this other stuff has happened, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and uh, great, excuse me, with power and great glory. Did that happen in 70 AD? Which means he is writing about things that have not happened yet. And I won't go into the eschatology here, but there are people who say there this is there's a time gap between these two events. There's different views on this. But he is writing about things he hasn't seen. You don't have to make the, the assumption that he's writing at a certain time period based off the fact that he's writing about a prophecy that has not happened yet. Another reason. Uh, they say that Luke used Mark and therefore must be later than 68 D. Now, remember when we talked about the synoptic problem way back when? The synoptic problem essentially says that Mark wrote first. Mark is the shortest, most comprehensive of the four Gospels. And that all the other writers borrow from Mark. If they borrow from Mark, that means they weren't eyewitnesses and they didn't actually see what happened. They weren't actually there. And then they just added to Mark. So because, in their opinion, Luke borrows from Mark, Mark wrote around 68 AD, therefore... Luke has to be later than Mark. Do you see how one assumption leads to the next? And they just build off that. The problem here is it's just an assumption of higher criticism. They haven't actually proven that Luke wrote after Mark. They just assume it because that's the only way they can keep their, their theory together. Um, there's a third argument. Luke and Matthew should be dated around the same time. They date Matthew in the 80s. Really late. And they say, well, because Matthew's dated so late, because they dated so late, therefore Luke must also be dated late, so Luke must have written sometime between 75 and 85 AD. Does this sound like a strong argument to you? Sounds pretty weak. It's just one assumption that leads to another assumption. Others say, well, Luke says that he wrote before him. Others wrote before him. And if others wrote before him, that must mean Luke was dated late. Well, you'd have to assume all the others wrote really late to get there. It's just one assumption based off another. So let's, let's move past that. I don't think anyone agrees with that. Reasons to embrace the 58 to 63 AD time frame. Uh, first, Paul is martyred in 68 AD. And this is why I wanted to go through the life of Luke last week. Luke ends Acts with Paul still in prison. Paul's in prison in the first time at the end of Acts. If this was written after Paul was martyred, why would his best friend not put it in his historical book? That's his best... They were friends. Why would he not describe his final imprisonment? Why did he not give details on the fourth missionary journey and how Paul ended up back in Rome in prison in 2 Timothy? Why does he not explain any of this? If Luke was writing before Paul or after Paul died, we should see Paul's death somewhere in his writings. If you were writing the history and you spent half of your second volume writing on one guy, wouldn't you want to put his death in there that he martyr it was martyred for the faith? Another problem. Acts 11:28. In Acts 11:28, Agabus prophesies a coming famine. And he says there's going to be a famine in the land. At the end of the verse, he tells us about the fulfillment of the prophecy. So Luke includes not only the prophecy, he includes the fulfillment. And he says, which took place in the reign of Claudius. Here's the prophecy. 
Here's the fulfillment. Luke gives us both. So why is it that Luke gives us the fulfillment of the prophecy of a famine, but he doesn't give us the fulfillment of the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem? It hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen until after he wrote. Another argument for the 58 to 63. Acts makes no mention of Paul's writings. We saw last week how he was traveling with Paul. Everywhere Paul went, Luke was there. He was a witness to all of it. He was likely there for some of the writing, but he never once references any of them. Is that because he was writing before? We don't really know why, but he doesn't write them. He doesn't write about the writings, and he doesn't use them at all in his work. And we'll see today, Luke was a theologian. We saw last week, Luke was preaching and teaching. You would think in his effort to teach on the theology of Christ, he would at least use his mentor's work. And he makes no mention of them at all. Fourth, when you look through Luke and Acts, there's no mention of any event after 62 AD. Everything that they, he mentions in his work all happened before 62 AD. There's no mention of the death of James. That happened in 62 AD. There's no mention of the burning of Rome. When the capital city of the empire is set on fire, people are going to talk and write about it. Luke, the historian, says nothing. As I said, there's no mention of Paul's death. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem. Nothing after 62 AD is mentioned. When was Luke's death? I'm sorry? What, when was uh, Luke's death? We don't know exactly when he died. We know when Paul died, right around 68, but we're not sure when, when Luke died. Well, you'd have to assume that he died before then, because he didn't know the history. Yeah, he wasn't. He didn't write any more books. You you might be able to assume that he died sometime before then. All you can assume is he didn't write any more books because we don't have any record of him. Yeah. So I would say the best time frame for this is somewhere between 58 and 62. You can go out to 63. I put it on your handout at 63, but that's probably the best time frame to date it. Okay, so he's writing from 58 to 63, but where is he when he's writing? Well, Luke and Acts don't give us any indication of where he's writing. He doesn't say, I'm in Rome. He doesn't tell us where he is. The most we can say is that he's writing from a region filled with Gentiles. Um, again, this is part of, that, part of the evidence that I can't demonstrate because your Greek has to be better than mine. <laughs> and my Greek isn't all the way at the point where I can do this, so I'm going to lean on some people who know Greek a lot better than I do. Robert Plummer said, The peculiarities of its diction point to a center in, a, in which Hellenistic influences prevailed. That is to say, when they look at the Greek language and what he said and how he said it and the idioms he used, it sounds like a guy who's living among a whole bunch of Greek-speaking and Greek culture. Historical witnesses also describe when they think Luke wrote. Some say he wrote from Achaia. Anybody know what country Achaia is in? Middle East. Close. In Caesarea? To do his research, yes. Achaia's, if you look at the country of Greece, there's that southern peninsula. That southern peninsula would have been called Achaia. Even today, if you go to Google Maps and search Achaia, it'll be the northern part of that peninsula. And early church historians, early church witnesses say that Luke was probably writing from there. One of those witnesses is, is the anti-Marcionite prologue. Anybody remember what that is? That's awesome. Um, yes, so Marcion was tearing apart Gospels, and they started putting this prologue on the manuscripts to help inform people that Marcion was wrong. Part of that prologue on Luke says this, 
Moved by the Holy Spirit, Luke composed all of this gospel in the districts around Achaia, although there were already gospels in existence. So this anti-Marcionite prologue said Luke was in Achaia. This is about the mid-2nd century, about 150. Even Jerome, one of only two early church fathers who knew Greek and Hebrew, at one time in his commentary on Matthew, said that Luke was writing from Achaia. Now, before you jump on the Achaia bandwagon, uh, just realize that later in his life, Jerome said he could have been writing from Rome. So there's all these different views on where he's writing. And now for the most disappointing part of this. The question to the answer is, we don't know where he was when he wrote this. These are people's opinions, and we're really not sure. He did his research, we believe, in Caesarea, while Paul was in prison at the end of Acts. He spent two years there. Could he have done his writing partly there? Yes. We know from Acts he spent a whole bunch of time on a ship when they did not have internet. And he probably wasn't carrying around a whole lot of books, so he probably had sufficient time to do some writing on the ship. But we don't know. All right, let's see if we can get an answer we can, a question we can answer. Who was he writing to? Theophilus. Luke 1, verse 3. He says his name very clearly. Wow, I've made it all the way back to Mark. Luke 1, verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Acts 1, verse 1, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus. I just read everything we, are, we know about Theophilus. His name means lover of God. Yeah. Okay. And it's Greek. Yes, it's a Greek name. It means lover of God or friend of God. And he gives them a title. Go over to the most excellent. Go over to the book of Acts, Acts 23. And I just want to show you how this title is used. This title of most excellent. It's used for Roman governors. Acts 23, starting in verse 26. We're just going to hit a couple of these really quick. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix. Acts 24, verse 3. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix. Acts 26, verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. This is a term of honor given to Roman governors. Now, does that mean Theophilus was a Roman governor? No, not exactly, because this same term can be applied to people who are of great wealth and prominence. So, what we know about Theophilus is that he was very prominent, he was very wealthy, he could have been in a position of power. And so he is Luke's first intended audience. His first audience, his primary audience, is this man named Theophilus. We can assume from what, Paul, from what Luke writes that Theophilus is a devout Christian, or at least a new Christian. Luke 1, he says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So he has already learned something about Christ, and he's obviously interested in the person and the work of Christ, because Luke is writing these really long letters to him, explaining the history of who Christ was and what he did, and what happened as a result of his life. But that's likely not his only audience. He wants this also to go out to all Gentiles. And there's some evidence that he's writing to Gentiles. And he's making an appeal to Gentiles. First, he avoids the use of the term rabbi. Matthew used rabbi. He used it four times. Mark used it three times. John used rabbi eight times. You'd think Luke would use it at least once. He avoids it completely. Yeah. He avoids it completely. We talked last week about him being a Gentile. Avoids the term completely. 
Uh, go over to... Um, I need someone to go to Matthew 21. And I have two verses for you in Matthew 21. Someone else to go to Mark 11. And someone else to go to Luke 19. Matthew 21, 9 and 15. Whoever's going to Mark, Mark 11, verse 9. And then Luke 19, 38. There's another word he leaves out that's helpful. All right, who's got Matthew 21? Go ahead. Matthew 21, verse 9 and verse 15. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Okay. This is the triumphal entry. Jesus is going into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna. Mark 11, verse 9. Who's got that? Just start reading if you want to read. Nobody? And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. There it is again. And then Luke 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What's missing from Luke? Shouting, Hosanna. The other gospel writers all record the crowd shouting Hosanna. Luke leaves it out. Why would he leave it out? It's a Semitic term. It's a term Hebrews would have known. It means to help or save, I pray. It's the same word used in Psalm 118, verse 25. O Lord, do save. There's the word Hosanna. And it's transliterated into Greek. But if he would have written that to Gentiles, they would have been clueless on what they're talking about. The Savior is coming into Jerusalem and they're shouting, save. And they're praising him for it. Um, when we hear about him talking about the death and the crucifixion, Matthew 27, verse 33, it says that Jesus would be crucified at Golgotha, or they took him to Golgotha. But Luke doesn't use that same term. Golgotha was a place that Jews would have known, but the Gentiles would never have known it. Instead, Luke, in Luke 23:33 uses a Greek term that just means skull. He's leaving out terms that would have been confusing to Gentile readers. And then Luke goes and starts explaining the geography of Israel. All right, if you're from San Antonio, and I come to you and I say, hey, I spent some time yesterday in Leon Valley. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If I say, hey, we have people who come to this church who drive all the way from Fredericksburg. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But if you had just moved here from Japan, and I told you, hey, we have people driving from Fredericksburg, how much would that help? Wouldn't do anything for them, would it? Well, let me show you this, because I want to just show you a couple examples of this. Luke 1, verse 26. Notice how he explains geography here. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. If you're from Israel, you don't need anyone to tell you that Nazareth is in Galilee. Uh, Luke 4.31, he does the same thing again. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Again, why do you need to explain that to Jews? They know where these cities are. Luke 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Uh, go all the way back to Luke 23, all the way at the end. This is the story of Joseph of Arimathea, verse 51. He had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews... 
if he was writing to Jews, he would have said one of your cities, and he wouldn't really need to say that because if I talk about Fredericksburg, I'm not going to tell you it's a city in Texas. You already know that. But you could say city of Germans. You could say that. You can give more information. Yeah. But if you're a native here, you already know that too, right? Yeah. And so it's, he's giving information that makes it seem as though he's writing to people who just don't know the area. Never they don't, they've never been there. They don't know anything about it. Uh, Luke 24, verse 13, talking about the two walking on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. He's helping them understand distance. He's helping them understand where things are relative to one another. And he even explains Jewish feasts in uh, Luke 22, verse 1. He describes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if I told you in a month we're going to celebrate Christmas, I don't also need to tell you we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Right? Luke 22, verse 1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. Jews don't need that explanation. They know what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. They know it's connected to Passover. So he's probably writing to Gentiles. Okay, why? Why is he writing to the Gentiles? What is his purpose? What is his goal? Well, first, he's a historian. And he wants to give a history of the life of Jesus and the life of the early church. And Luke was a really good historian. Robert Gramacki said he has gained a reputation as an able historian through exactness. He's very precise in the details that he gives. Donald Guthrie, Luke must be known as a first-class ancient historian. His histories are really good. Luke 1, verse 4, I read this earlier, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that have been taught he wants to provide Theophilus and the Gentiles at large with an accurate, comprehensive history of the life of Christ. And notice, as a historian, he gives dates. He wants people to go back and be able to know exactly when events happened. Go back to Luke 1, Luke 1, verse 5. Notice the dating here. Yeah, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. In the days of King Herod, go over to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now in the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census had be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. How many different ways did he give you to date these events? Well, he triangulated it. Right. Because there might have been more than one census, but there's only one that was the first when yeah. so-and-so was governor. He gave you exact details. Luke chapter 3, again, verses 1 and 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene. Again, how much information does he provide just so you know the exact time these events occurred? This is what a historian does. They hadn't, they hadn't codified B.C. and A.D. at that point. Yeah, B.C. That was, that was a later thing when we went, okay, we're going to call A.D., we're going to start it right here, okay. and we're going to start okay. counting forward. Now, the Jews had a Jewish calendar. The Gentiles had a different calendar. Um, we didn't go to what we're currently on called the Gregorian calendar until the medieval period. Yeah. Pope Gregory, yeah. better so history buffs than me, like it was like 11, 1200s, and he codified it and gave us the A.D. and B.C., but during this time, everyone kind of had their own calendar, and so they would date things this way when they write. This event happened, this was the ruler, this was the ruler, this was... And they give you kind of like, I give directions. Okay, go down to the McDonald's, turn left. When you see, yeah, when you see the McDonald's on your left, yeah, that's what you want to think. <laughs> that, that's kind of how they date, you know. The Here's the stuff around it. That's, that's when it is. 
But that's a great question. That, that, is, a, that is a good question. Um, Luke's first goal is to give a historical account, and he's giving that account for a purpose. He's giving them the history because he wants to deepen their faith and help them understand who Christ is and help them grow in their faith. His history is intended to point to a theology. Um, in Luke 9, 51 through Luke 18, 14, that's a whole big section, roughly nine chapters, he provides information nobody else does. And it's all centered around one idea. And the idea is Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going there to die. That's the whole point of that section. Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. Luke 9, 51 is where he begins this. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 53. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Luke 12, verse 50. Jesus speaking, he says, But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. I'm going to my death, and this is causing me distress. Luke 13, verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. We'll do one more. Verse 33 of that same chapter. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Luke wants to put together this picture of Jesus the Messiah, so to speak, marching to his own death. What was the range you said, Luke 50, uh, 951 to what? To 1814. Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem where he knows he will die. Why is that important to the Gentiles? If Luke is the Messiah to the Jews, why do the Gentiles care? Because Luke's point is, this history is here to help you understand that the death of Christ was not for Jews only. It includes the Gentiles. And he was, in, he was intentional in going. This was a death for all mankind. Now, there are some problems with this quote. If you take it out of context and you assume things, so just assume the best about the author, okay? Because if you just take this in by itself, you're going to hear some problems. In Luke, Christ is not the Messiah of the Old Testament. See what I said? Or the servant of God, so much as the Savior of all mankind, the satisfier of humanity's need. He's not saying he's not the Messiah. He's saying he's not the Messiah only for the Jews. And that's the point Luke is trying to make. He is the Messiah to the Gentiles as well. Luke could rightly be called a historical evangelist. He is evangelizing through this history. And that history points the Gentiles to a very rich theology and helps them understand the theology. Luke was a fantastic theologian. And his books are filled with wonderful theology. So, could you say that Luke is the, not, not the father of, of the gospel to the Gentiles, but the if it wouldn't have been for Luke, it probably would not have gone to the Gentiles as, as much as it did. Right? Yeah. The, Matthew wrote to Jews. John was writing primarily to Jews. Mark was writing to Gentiles, but he had a very short, abbreviated version of the gospel. Um, they would have had to wait for Paul, and then Paul didn't give the life of Christ. So, yeah, a lot of what went out to the Gentiles came from Luke. That there was animosity between Jews and Gentiles, whether they were in fact being polluted. Yeah, and there was that animosity, and the, yeah, for the first part of the church, they yeah, were being persecuted by the Jews, and right? They were trying to mutilate them with, with the uh, circumcision and all that, and Paul got pretty upset about that. Yeah, and that was actually his term for it. Yeah, mutilate. Yeah, he said, "Why don't you go mutilate yourselves?" Yeah. <laughs> but I want you to notice how he focuses on. The gospel here. Um, Luke 2, 
verse 29. I just want you to hear this because he keeps going back to this idea of the gospel. And he's including the Gentiles in this. Twenty-nine. Would someone else like to read Luke two twenty-nine through thirty-two, just to get some more activity, Jessica? Yes, ma'am. It's a light to who? Jews and Gentiles. It's a light to everybody. And he's sure to include the Gentiles in the statement. Um, in Luke 3, verses 4 through 6. Now, every one of the Gospel writers includes this portion here. And all of them include a quote from Isaiah 40. Matthew and Mark quote Isaiah 40, verse 3. That's Matthew 3, 1 through 6, Mark 1, 2 through 6. Luke quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3 through verse 5. Why is that relevant? Would someone read um, Luke 3, 4 through 6? Matthew and Mark leave that last part out. They don't quote that. Luke includes all flesh, Jew and Gentile, will see salvation. Uh, Luke 4, 25 through 27. This would have been rather offensive to the Pharisees when Jesus did this to them. Luke 4, 25, but I say to you in truth... There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. He could have helped all the Jews, but he didn't. He went to a Gentile. Verse 27, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He could have cured all the lepers in Israel, but he didn't. He cured a Gentile. An evil one. An, an evil Gentile, right? He was the general of the Syrian army. Notice he keeps including Gentiles in the gospel, in this idea of salvation. Uh, Luke 13, 22. We're not going to read all of this section because it's just long, and we're going to run out of time if I do. Jesus is teaching on salvation. Um, verse 22, Jesus is proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And he starts talking about salvation. He tells them, you need to strive to enter through the door. Once the head of the house closes the door, verse 25, you won't be able to enter in. Then you, will be able, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say to them, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And then he describes hell and that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. You're going to be sitting in hell looking at all the patriarchs that you love so much while they are in the kingdom and you are not. That would have been hard enough. And then the next verse... And they will come from the east and west, from the north and the south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. East, west, north, south, that refers to all the Gentiles that surround Israel. You Jews, you're going to be cut out because you won't repent and trust in your Messiah, and the Gentiles will inherit the kingdom from you. Ouch. So would you say verse 30 is referring to Gentiles? Last would be first. Yes. They would be included in that. Yes. We're going to run out of time. I need to move faster here. Uh, unlike the Pharisees, Luke points out that Jesus cared for sinners. I'll just give you these verses. Luke 15, um, 
Now at the time, tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him. Jesus cared for sinners. Uh, Luke 15, 11 through 32 is the prodigal son. And he shows the mercy and compassion that the father shows to the son. That's a picture of God. Luke demonstrates that Jesus cares for all people, whether you're a Gentile or any other kind of person. Something interesting here, in the other Gospels, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is depicted as having crowds follow him. In Mark 1, it says Jesus felt compassion on the crowd. In John 6, Jesus felt compassion on them, so he fed them. Luke never says he felt compassion for the crowd. Luke illustrates that Jesus had compassion on individuals. He's not excluding Jesus having compassion on the crowd. He's just emphasizing that the compassion was demonstrated to the individual. And he gives us stories nobody else gives. Zacharias in Luke 1. The story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Even children, Luke 7 verse 12, Luke 8 verse 42, Luke 9 38. Stories of children and Jesus caring for them. He cares for you if you're a Gentile. He cares for you if you're a Jew. He cares for you if you're lame, blind, poor, rich, old, young. He even emphasizes stories about women and his care for them, which would have been very unusual in that day. Luke presents Jesus to the Gentiles as someone who cares for them individually. And then he focuses on prayer. There are nine mentions of prayer of Jesus, the prayers of Jesus. He mentions it nine times that Jesus prayed. And sometimes he gives you the content of the prayer and sometimes he doesn't. Seven of those are unique to Luke. Seven of them are not found in any other gospel writer. At the baptism of Jesus in Luke 3, after miracles in Luke 5, when he chose the 12 apostles, how much time did he spend in prayer? All night. Before revealing his coming death in Luke 9, at his transfiguration, I, I, I want to show you this one, Luke 9. This is an interesting one. Luke 9, verse 29. He goes up, he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 28, that's verse 29. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. Paul Washer says, when Jesus prayed, amazing things happened. It was an awesome thing to watch Jesus pray. You want to know how awesome it was to watch him pray? Go over to Luke 11, 1. This shows you just how important this was to the disciples and how powerful this was to them. Luke 11, 1, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Have you ever prayed in front of someone and they come up to you afterwards and say, hey, can you show me how to pray like that? That's what happens when the disciples watch him pray. And notice they waited till he was done. He actually says, after he was finished. Nobody's going to go bug him while he's doing that. <laughs> Nobody wants to interrupt that communion. Luke 22, verse 31 and 32. Only Luke records that Jesus said he was praying for Peter. Remember he said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Only Luke records that. And I will add, you hear a lot of people who are worried about the devil. Yes, there is a devil, and yes, he is powerful, but he's on a leash, and he has to ask permission. Just so we don't forget. Luke also gives us parables on prayer. Luke 18, he gives two parables on prayer. One is in verses eight, 1 through 8, and the other is in 9 through 14. Luke gives us a lot that other writers don't give. Matthew, if you go and look at Matthew, 40% of what Matthew says is not found in the other Gospels. 10% of what Mark says is not found in other Gospels. When you get to Luke, 50% of his content is not found in the other Gospels. It's unique to Luke. What are some of those things that are unique to him? The birth narratives. Matthew begins his birth narratives roughly six months before Jesus is born. Luke begins 15 months before he's born. 
And he includes not only the announcements of the birth of John the Baptist, he includes the actual birth of John the Baptist, he includes Mary's visit to Elizabeth, he includes the story of the shepherds in the field who are being told about the Messiah. He gives far more information than any other gospel writer on the birth of Christ. He includes parables that are not found in any other, I wish I had time to go through these, um, any other gospel account, the parable of the debtors in Luke 7. The Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Again, that's pointing them to the Gentiles. The rich man storing up treasure in Luke 12. And you should have all the parables in the themes on your handout. Is that on there? Major themes, gentle prayer. Did I include that? Unique parables? Okay, okay. So you have all of those if you want to go look at those. Those are all unique to Luke. So I won't go through and read them all. I would encourage you to go home and look at them. They're really fascinating parables. They are some wonderful teaching. And then Luke ends his gospel later than everybody else. Everyone else ends their gospel almost immediately after the resurrection. Jesus shows up after the resurrection in Matthew, and he gives them the Great Commission, and the gospel ends. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mark ends right after the resurrection. They find the, the women go to the, t- the tomb. They see the resurrected Lord, and then they run back in awe and in terror. Gospel ends. John ends it right when they're on the boat. You know, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And so they go back to their old life. And Jesus comes and says, hey, you're not catching anything, are you? <laughs> and he calls them and he speaks to them. We don't see about the ascension there. We just find out that He restores Peter, and he talks to John, and the gospel ends. Luke is the only one in Luke 24 to actually give us the resurrection. Uh, That's in Luke 24, 50 through 53. And then I'll have you note that in the book of Acts, that's exactly where he starts. He starts right after the resurrection. Um. Acts 1, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up into heaven. He picks up right where he left off. He ends his gospel with the, the ascension, and he picks up on it right when he starts up again, volume 2. Covers more material than anybody else. Okay. We have a couple minutes. Do you guys have questions, comments? No interpretive issues? We'll do those either next week or the following. We'll just do all of them together okay. for Luke and Acts. Okay. What Luke is doing is being a doctor of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Because he's, you can have surgery on the eye, but Luke goes into what all you have to do before and what the conclusion of the eye surgery is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's, that's good. Anyone else? Any other comments, questions? No. Okay. Well, then let's close off in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you have uh, preserved the book of Luke, uh, that you have provided your church with such an amazing gospel account of the life of Christ, uh, provided to us by this man named Luke, uh, the beloved physician, the historian, the theologian, the pastor, the preacher, the friend, Uh, What an amazing character he is. What an amazing person he seems to have been. And we are so thankful that you used him uh, to share with us the life of Christ. We do ask that you would help us this morning as we worship, that our worship would be pleasing and glorifying to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.